Flying across the universe on the Endurance, it's the DigiGuys. And now, please welcome two men who know better than to trust Matt Damon, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Matt Damon. Love that. Corey? That was sent in by Kevin Lower, who's got the dirt on Damon, apparently. I want to hear more. <laughs> the dirt on Damon. <laughs> Matt Corey, he's a jokester. Matt Damon. I Do love you, that movie. That's a funny You know stuff I love that movie. I, I was know. sent that movie by one of our best fans. <laughs> oh, I want them to do another feature. They just, I know. they just keep doing South Parks. They keep doing South Stop Parks. Stop it. I mean, I know that's their bread and butter, and it's a lot of money, and it's it's fun, and it's easy, but... Just it's such it. a burnout gig, though. When when they're done with that season, they are burned the hell out. I know. they got to do it every week. I know. A full episode every week of animation. Yeah. You know. That's... So, uh, but here's the thing, too. You know, the, don't, don't forget, for every Team America, they gave us basketball. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. It may wind up being basketball. Yeah. Plus, well. also, I think that in, in, in the Trump era, everything they want to get out in terms of their political thoughts, they can do it in, in way more timely fashion sure. on South Park. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, anyway, so uh, we have an interview this week, a really interesting interview, uh, which we'll get to later. We're going to be talking to Jack Theakston, who is the associate producer at the 3D Film Archive, who restored uh, a movie called Those Redheads from Seattle, which we'll be talking about a little bit uh, in just a little bit today from uh, Kino Lorber, a 3D musical from back in the day. Uh, a lot of people Did didn't realize the, they did um... such things. Did you ever read the? Uh, sorry to interrupt. Yes. Did you ever hear the uh, the advice that uh, that Matt and Trey gave to uh, uh, screenwriters? Yes. In fact, that very advice that they gave, uh, which which was an NYU thing, where they went to NYU and right. they said that you know you should you should uh, instead of doing this and that this but right that, that's saying, that's their whole yes. You know, John gets a new job, therefore he makes a lot of money. You know, you do. John gets a new job, but yes, his coworker is insane. Yes, yes. it's the it's the yeah. Uh, which is basically their way of suggesting that instead of a sequence of events, you have to throw obstacles and curves and, you know, you make the journey interesting. So it's interesting because I, when, when we did our uh, workshop in Jordan, I referenced that. And I may be the only person to ever reference Matt Parker and or Matt, Matt Stone and Trey Parker at, uh, in, in a refugee camp in Jordan. But I hope they appreciate that they have made it that far afield. They don't. No, they don't. They probably don't care. Uh, case, Sorry about no. that. So we have a uh, we have we have an interview, a very interesting one. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. In fact, I will give you I will give you 15 seconds to say what it is again because I interrupted you rudely. Oh, Jack Theakston of the. Uh, anyway, so what I'm saying, Wade, is oh, sorry. I'll give it to you again. So what's his name? Jack Theakston. Theakston. Okay, and, wh and what's he talking about? He's talking about the, the 3D restoration of those redheads from Seattle. It's gonna be good times. Uh, you know what, Mark? We're gonna we're gonna burn through some uh, music, and uh, I, uh, the, you know, have you been watching Twin Peaks? No. No. Can I, can I give you the secret shame of my life? Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Never seen Twin Peaks. You've never seen Twin any Peaks. of them. Okay. Any so, of them. The old one, the new one, the well, one in the middle. You need to watch the, the movies. The, never. You need to watch the the. It's all. You can watch the whole thing now. I don't have Netflix anymore. No, it's not Netflix. It's Showtime. I don't have Showtime. You don't have Showtime. No, and I don't okay. have Netflix. Okay. Well, I'm canceling Showtime because I've seen all of Twin Peaks now, so I'm done. Wait, wait. Oh, so the uh, the season finale was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, no, it's over. It? It's done. Yeah, it's Did all you done. Like it? 
I I did really thoroughly like it. Okay, I, do you like it because 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 your wife knows him? No, no, no. She she refuses to watch <laughs> because I didn't even tell you this. I, I think I told uh, uh, Tim. See, everybody who's been part of the the whole Lynch family, Lynch mob, the, the Lynch mob, right? Exactly. They all they they all have cameos in this thing. So you know, I it, it, and for for example. Um, Christy's friend Jay, who has been, you know, up there and part of the, the whole Lynch crew for a very long time. Well, Jay has a cameo in this thing as a guy who, and I've met Jay. I know Jay. Jay has a cameo as a guy in the jail who has a, a you know, a bandage on his on his cheek and he's drooling blood and he just repeats everything that everybody else says. It's a completely weird Lynchian thing, and I'm sure a lot of people out there are wondering, like, who is that masked man? Who is that strange guy in the cell with the with the bandage and the blood? It's Jay. He's just he, he, he Lynch threw him a bone and let him let him do something weird. That's it. There's nothing else to it. So is Christy not watching the show because she's not in it? No, she's she jealous, just, horribly, she, she, horribly jealous. No, she just knows how the sausage is made. That's it. That's it. She just knows how the sausage is made. She can't deal with it. And she never really cared for Twin Peaks anyhow. She likes, obviously, the stuff she worked on, Straight Story and Mulholland Drive and, and all that, uh, Lost Highway. I mean, I, but I like Lost Highway more than she does, so there it is. Wait, Lost Highway is the one where Robert Blake calls himself? Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> it's the best. Which is referenced, by the way, in uh, in the uh, the Michael Haneke film um, um, that we gave the award to. Um, Cachet. Uh, Cachet. Yeah. Cachet is. You realize there there are tons of connections between Lost Highway and Cachet. Really? It's not just the videotape, the dropping off of the videotape. There are actual character names. Andy Klein was the one who picked up on this. He's like. I don't think that's a coincidence because in Lost Highway, this character is named this, and in Cachet, the character is it's the same name. Like Andy picked up on all this stuff, and I was like, oh. "How is Andy doing, by the way?" You know what? I gotta go check out, check up on him. He, uh, you know, he's he's uh, he's doing okay, I think. Is he still writing? So. Um, you know, he's supposed to come back to Film Week uh, this month. Yay! So, yeah. Best anyway. editor I ever had. Yep, I agree. Anyway, uh, so the uh, speaking of David Lynch, the David Lynch Foundation benefit concert. Uh, you know, this is just a lot of fun people. Uh, Paul McCartney and uh, Ringo and uh, you know, who else here? Let's see, Donovan, Eddie Vedder. Uh, this was a, a concert called Change Begins Within, which took place at Radio City Music Hall. And it's, uh, it's all kind of raising money for the David Lynch Foundation, which is to teach children about uh, transcendental meditation. Because Lynch is very much into uh, TM, and the, everybody decided to pitch in and uh, give him give him a hand. So that's what this is. This is uh, you know a uh, a pretty amazing concert, all things considered. Jerry Seinfeld even shows up here. Uh, so uh, this is the uh, Change Begins Within benefit concert for the David Lynch Foundation. Worth checking out. Uh, a lot of interesting people. And then, uh, real quickly, the uh, on the classical music front, which I know Mark hates, we got three from Opus Arte here. We've got uh, Shakespeare's *The Tempest* in collaboration with Intel from the Royal uh, Shakespeare Company. This is really, really good. I love *The Tempest*. Uh, this is probably my favorite Shakespearean uh, play, and I think this is an unbelievably cool production of it. Uh, one of the best I've ever seen, maybe even the best. Really, really great. So. Uh, this is worth checking out. This was uh, produced at Stratford-on-Avon. This is from Opus Arte, Royal Shakespeare Company. Absolutely terrific. Got to check it out. Um, in association with the Imaginarium Studios as well. So that's from uh, Opus Arte. Also from Opus Arte uh, is Berlioz, Beatrice, and Benedict. 
this also has Shakespearean uh, undertones, obviously. Uh, Berlioz adapting Much Ado About Nothing, and uh, this is quite nice. I was unfamiliar that this even existed, but uh, this, is, uh, this is quite good. So that's all from Opus Arte. Uh, and then also from Opus Arte, the last of the three, is uh, Rossini's William Tell, as long as we're talking about interesting adaptations. Uh, this is with the Royal Opera Chorus and the Orchestra of the Royal Opera House, performed at the Royal Opera House in uh, London, and uh, very, very impressive. Uh, Rossini's William Tell is, um, is the, it was actually the last thing that Rossini ever wrote, and it's a, it's a really, it's a pretty powerful piece. So if you like opera, uh, you'll definitely vibe to that. And uh, then we have from Unitel, uh, Franco Faccio uh, in a uh, kind of a, an opera version of Hamlet, which I'm not really familiar with. This is the f world premiere recording of it. And uh, it's kind of weird. Uh, this is with the Prague Philharmonic Choir and the uh, Vienna Symphonic Orchestra. It's, uh, it just, it's odd, I guess. I'll recommend it to people who just want to see things adapted in an interesting way. And then we also have uh, Mozart's Requiem, which is very, very nice. This is the uh, Mozart Voca Salzburg. This is performed in Salzburg in that ancient, uh, that very, very old uh, arena. And it's, it's, uh, it's very nice. It's quite, quite impressive. Got a lot of scale. And then wrapping it up, uh, Handel's Messiah. Very, very nice uh, production of it, conducted by uh, Ruben Dubrovsky with the uh, Salzburger Bancor and the Bach Concert Vienne. I'm sure I did not pronounce those correctly. Uh, this is uh, one of the more interesting performances from uh, Naxos of the, of, the, uh, of the Messiah. And then um, Puccini's Tosca, only on DVD from Art House Music, not, uh, not on Blu-ray, which is unfortunate. Uh, this is the uh, Royal Opera House Chorus and Orchestra at Covent Garden. Covent Garden is so great. Don't I miss Covent Garden. I know. I love it's that place. It's just overblown with tourists now. I know. I don't know if you'd love it as much. Uh, I'm not, but I do. It's just it's a nice place to go and sit and eat and hang you know out. What? It's great. I, look, I had never been to Paris in August. You know, August, everybody leaves. Everybody flees the city, right? Yeah. Because August is their like, vacation month. Nobody's around. Places to go, places to go town. Yeah. So I go to Paris in August. This is a couple weeks ago. And uh, it was great. Yeah. It wasn't a ghost town. There were people doing yeah. stuff, whatever. Yeah. It wasn't as crowded. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't very hot. But I love the fact that it's a ghost town. So I have no problem going to cities, and I've done it before, in the off-season. I've been to London in February. I've been to Paris in March. I've been to Paris in August. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's good stuff. Yeah. Love I it. Off-season is good. Last, last two bits on music. Uh, this is a Blu-ray hybrid SACD called Minor Major for the Oslo String Quartet playing uh, a quartet by Beethoven and a quartet by Franz Schubert. Very, very nice. If you like those uh, two composers, it's a nice combination. Schubert and Beethoven goes well together, like, uh, you know, ham and cheese or something. All right, Mark, new movies. What do we got? Well, thank you, Ross. Anyway, we have Tom Cruise in The Mummy. All right, next. Man, this was a dog. It really was a dog. You know what? I, you, you just felt in every frame of this film Universal's pressure to introduce the mummy and Jekyll and Hyde and Tom <sighs> Cruise and all this stuff, like to set up a universe. And it just it felt so mercenary to me. It did. It really did. Honestly, the point at which uh, where, well, first of all, it, it feels very Indiana Jones ripoff right from the very beginning. Uh, 
Uh, sure, they're, they're in the Middle East, antiquities, the whole thing. Yeah, that just feels really more so than the Brendan Fraser mummy movies, which at least had a little sense of time, like cheeky fun it, it, about it them. It definitely had more of a Saturday matinee, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark tone. Yeah, it did, it did. But when uh, when we finally get into the Jekyll and Hyde bit, that's where I checked out. That's where I really, really checked out. Well, that was called that, that was the, the, they should instead of calling him. Dr. Jekyll, they should call him like Dr. Universal. Yeah. Or Dr. Boardroom. Yeah. Because that was the one where, oh, we can set this one up and this one up. So we have him for a spinoff. We have Tom Cruise for another three movies. Yeah. It's going to be great. Not great. And by no. the way, I love Tom Cruise. I've loved Tom Cruise when it was not fashionable to love Tom Cruise. I love Tom this Cruise. Is, this was my reaction. Russell, Russell Crowe shows up and I go, oh, Russell Crowe's in this? I didn't know Russell Crowe was in this. That's interesting. I wonder why Russell Crowe's in this. And he says, hello, my name's... Dr. Jekyll. I thought, oh, no, 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 you are not going to, no, don't do this. Please don't do this. And then like 10 minutes later, he's, he's, he's transforming. And I just thought, oh, come on, stop it. No, it's not good. Really? Uh, so look, I, I, look, if you rented this on a Saturday night and, uh, and, 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 and got stones and had some pizza, would you like it? Sure. Whatever. <laughs> but I'm just, and, and it, what's funny is that considering how much was on the line, it really, was curious that they would give this thing to Alex Kurtzman to direct, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. this guy has, you know, he directed one film, People Like Us, which is uh, as far afield from this as you can imagine. Yeah. And they're literally trusting essentially an untrusted screen, uh, 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 untested director to, re- to launch an entire cinematic universe. Yeah. I just think that was crazy. Yeah. I mean, you're better off giving it to Christopher McQuarrie. Uh-huh. I mean, the last Mission Impossible was terrific. Yeah. You know, the Mission Impossible films are good. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. And Cruz and McQuarrie have a great... Um, they, 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 report? They, they have a great yeah, report? That's it. They just have a tremendous... They do. Um, you know, that's why McQuarrie's the go-to guy on all of the uh, the other films. The, uh, Which ones? The, where Jack the, Reacher? Yeah, the Jack Reacher films. Well, the Jack Reacher... That, the Jack Reacher's weird, too, because... What does Tom Cruise need Jack Reacher for? It's never going to be a Mission Impossible scaled success. It's fun. He doesn't need a mid-level franchise. Why does Tom Cruise need a middling franchise? Because they're fun to make. I think they're fun to make. I would. Well, I want to see him make more films like American Made, which I have not seen yet. But it's a, just a one-off. Yeah. Looks like. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. You don't. You don't think that's something he should be doing more of? I. 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 Why did I make a face? Yes. I did. Yes. Okay. Never maybe, mind. Maybe you were gassy. Okay. <laughs> and uh, did again in Tombstone Danny Trejo and Jake Busey if that doesn't really light your world on fire come on when I say Danny Trejo and Jake Busey you get excited don't you you think it must take place in an insane asylum <laughs> uh, Danny Trejo he, 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 first of all not only does Danny Trejo have a taco restaurant, um, but uh, I've it's had like some... a vegetarian taco restaurant yes. or something, right? But at the office about a month ago, they brought in Danny Trejo donuts. Yeah. So Danny Trejo has a donut shop. And by the way, I'm not a big fan of donuts, but I like these donuts. They were good. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, Danny Danny Trejo uh, works for the devil, and he comes back from the dead, in the, and 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 uh, goes to Tombstone and. You know, there's a and then there's like an Indiana Jones kind of thing here because there's some kind of an ancient relic and Jake Busey wants it and it's just a an uh-huh. odd supernatural mm-hmm. western. It really is. Uh-huh. Um, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And you know, with Jake Busey and Danny Trejo, it doesn't need to because it's dead again in Tombstone. 
Look, you watch this because you you like Danny Trejo, and that's it. If you if you like Machete, then you'll probably like this. Uh, Wade uh, Miguel Arteta. Yeah. We kind of like him, right? Yeah, he's all right. Sure, he's uh, he's got a Sundancey like yeah. got a Sundancey thing going on. Yeah. Uh, this thing was also written by Mike White. Now you may know that we from like Mike White, the Good Girl, and yeah. Chuck and Buck. Yeah. Uh, here they're back with something a little too on the nose and a little too glossy and predictable called Beatriz at Dinner. This is uh, Selma Hayek, who's uh, good. You know, we don't see Selma Hayek a lot anymore, and no. uh, you realize that she's kind of not not good. She's good. She kind of wish she did more stuff. She plays a healthcare worker who uh, befriends this sort of, uh, I guess you can say he's, he's, he's like a Donald Trumpian real estate magnet. And so magnet? Like attracts metal? It, it, you know what? Salma Hayek attracts metal. Okay. In fact, his watch gets stuck on her boob for the whole film. Mm-hmm. Wow. Anyway, Connie Britton is also in this. Here's the thing. Is that it's, uh, it's well-intentioned, but it's a little too on the nose. And I just feel like it tries to mix, you know, the haves and have-nots and how they clash socially. And I just I feel like it's just a little too much of an agenda film where you feel like the that they had a point they wanted to make about haves versus have-nots. And instead yep. of creating characters who, who then the point sort of the theme emerges from the characters, yep. the movie was created just to promote a theme. There you go. And that's never as, as effective. But, Too bad. Um, but I do like Salma Hayek, and I love John Lithgow. He's always great. Love seeing him. Glad he continues to get work. Um, so there you go. Be a at dinner. And we've got some Warner Archive titles. Uh, I'm going to hit the, uh, the the regular DVD-Rs, and then Mark can can gloat over the, the Blu-rays, which are pretty amazing. Um, the uh, Warner Color. I didn't even know there was such a thing as Warner Color. It's so funny. Uh, everybody had their their own branded color processes back in uh, back in the day. So uh, from 1952 is Warner Brothers' The Lion and the Horse. Uh, I was not able. Let me just point out this is hysterical. I was not able. Okay, let me back up. So my daughter uh, and I made mention of this on Facebook as well. So she she likes to carry Blu-rays around the house. I don't know if you know this. Have I told you this? No, you have not. Told she me has that. she has baskets full of Disney Blu-rays. That she carries around with her, because she just it's she feels like they she's adopted them. They're they're her movies now, and she keeps telling me to to you know go into the garage and pull out more movies. At one point, I said, "Do you want me to just bring open all the boxes and bring all the DVDs and Blu-rays in?" And she says, "Yes." So she makes me go and get La La Land. Of course, I'm not going to bring out my Blu-ray for La La Land. She'll destroy it. So I bring out the the the, the award screener, and she says, "No, the Blu-ray." She knows the difference now. Uh, she also knows when UPS shows up. UPS shows up, drops off a package. She says, "Is that my UPS?" This is what this is what I live Aww. with now. So uh, yeah, so the uh, when when the uh, the UPS delivery came with the Warner Archive stuff, uh, the lion and the horse. I take this out. She sees a lion. She sees a horse. She likes lions. She likes horses. She adopts this for two weeks. Yeah. So I, I couldn't I couldn't even look at it. I couldn't even touch this for two weeks. The lion and the horse. I finally snuck it away from her. I'm a bad dad. Anyway. Uh, so the uh, this is one of those uh, safari movies from the fifties. Basically, it was a it was a great way to show off color. Uh, you 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 know it's it you go off and you 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 shoot something in you know the 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 southwest or in Africa or South America or whatever it is. And uh, most of them were were like Tarzan and safari movies and things like that and you know uh, whatever. And a lot of them weren't even shot in Africa. This is this is a, a kind of a Western version of those, 
and uh, it's it's okay. The yearling is kind of part of that uh, a little bit too. Um, any movie, really, any movie from the from the early '50s with with animals, it was a way to show off color, show off the great outdoors and exotic environments. And uh, you know that was that was right when color was really really starting to standardize. Was the early '50s. So this is that's where this falls in. Uh, it's not a great movie, but it's uh, it, it, it's a it's a nice little throwback bit of kitsch. Uh, also from Warner Archive is Tom Keen in Crossfire. Uh, eh, not a great movie. These were programmers at the time. Uh, if you if you like pre-code westerns, you, if you understand why Tom Keen was sort of a fixture at the time, then you will probably enjoy this. It's somewhere between a legit western and a uh, and a serial western, and uh, not not terrific, uh, but archivally significant so you know uh, worth checking out only if you I would say only if you understand why Tom King was big big deal uh, this is great news so Sylvia Scarlet with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant uh, these all of these um, sort of mid-level Katherine Hepburn films came out in a box set years ago which has been out of print for a long time and a lot of people have been waiting for these and now they're coming back out now they're coming back out not in a box set but as Warner Archive one-offs but they're worth checking out and especially Sylvia Scarlet which was directed by George Cooker and produced by the great Pandro Berman this is really a wonderful showcase for uh, Catherine Hepburn this is the first time that she teamed up with Cary Grant and uh, Cooker just directs the daylights out of this it is just it, this is a an almost perfect film Edmund Gwen who would win an Oscar for uh, Miracle on 34th Street uh, also shows up playing uh, Hepburn's father. Uh, this is just a wonderful movie. Uh, it, uh, it, it's, it's funny and it's exciting and uh, it's just very, very much of the era and uh, it's like a perfect showcase for Catherine Hepburn and it's out again and I could not be happier. So look for that and all of those other early kind of mid-level Hepburn films uh, from Warner Archive. Go to warnerarchive.com and, uh, and do a search on Hepburn and you'll see them all. Well, here's the thing. You could be happier. Because you're like, oh, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. It's not true. No. How could, could what, what would make us happier? Blu-rays from Warner Archive? Ice cream. Ice cream. Okay, that could make us happier. Uh, wait, one of the essential films of the uh, 70s, ladies and gentlemen. Doubt. Night Moves. Yeah, directed, right. Directed by Arthur Penn. Yeah. Of course, Gene Hackman uh, worked with Arthur Penn in um, Bonnie and Clyde, and here he plays Harry Mosby. He's hired by an actress to locate her missing daughter. Locates the daughter. Daughter dies in a freak accident. But was it murder, 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 murder? <laughs> this is a great film. I love Gene Hackman. He's like my all-time favorite. Um, and this is right there in that paranoid 70s thing where uh, it was noirish. It was it questioned authority. It made people afraid of their institutions. And I just think that it's a great cast, including James Woods and Melanie Griffith. And, uh, yeah, this is an essential you, 70s ha film. Hackman could sit down on I a chair him. in front of a camera and just l smile for two hours, and you would see it. No, he, he has to laugh. Okay. I, I like the Hackman chuckle. Yeah, he's great. What else? Freebie and the Bean. Here's the thing with Freebie and the Bean. Freebie and the Bean It kind of holds up. You think? Kind of. Now, it was, done, it was directed by Richard Rush, who, of course, directed uh, the great uh, the Stuntman. Stuntman, Stuntman, yeah. No, Statman holds up. I know. Totally Tom holds up. Yeah. This one is a little bit more of a uh, of a you know of a standard wacky you know mismatched buddy cop kind of a film. Um, I think it's supposed to be charming, but in the end, I'm not sure that it is. Although it, it's got a great cast, James Caan, who rarely does stuff like this. Um, you know, usually James Caan, if he's in if he's in something like this, he's more of a straight man. Uh, and Alan Arkin, of course, the great Alan Arkin. 
and also Loretta Swit is in this from um, from MASH. And um, yeah, so Freebie and the Bean, kind of beloved. It's got some great chase scenes, including the iconic moment where the car flies into the guy's uh, swimming pool. Um, so if you're a fan of this film and you haven't seen it in a while, get ready for it to maybe not seem as funny as you remember it, but um, if you've never seen it before, you might kind of really get a sense of what uh, comedy from the mid-70s was like. Freebie and the Bean, it's a beloved film. It's, it's a rated R comedy, which automatically nice. is good. Uh, My Blue Heaven, Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. I remember this film. Uh, this film, as I remember, it was, um, I have not seen this. this I, I did not watch this Blu-ray, to be honest, but um, Herbert Ross directed it. Herbert Ross is not the wackiest comedy director in the world. Footloose. Oh, that's a wacky. Turn, turning Point. That's a wacky comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't Turning Point a wacky comedy? Oh, it's a wacky comedy. But it was written by Nor. so here's the thing. It's written by Nor Ephron. Yeah. That's a good thing, most of the time. Um, directed by Her- Herbert Ross. I remember this movie far too well, to be honest. Why? Did you like it? No, but I mean, because it's, it's just, you know, Steve Martin's a, he, he, right, he's a mobster and he goes into witness protection and Rick Moranis is, it, it, look, here, here's why this was a thing, because Steve Martin and Rick Moranis were funny and uh, they were making movies at the time and Nora Ephron was able to get them into a movie and so they just mug it up and it, this is like one of the last movies where Steve Martin basically just does his wild and wacky guy except with a funny hairstyle and that's it. I don't know why Herbert Ross even had anything to do with this. Goldie Hawn, executive produced this? Good grief. Really? Is that what it's Yeah, called? John Bailey shot it. This is just a, this is sort of a classic, this is an 80s movie made in 1990. This is one of the last 80s movies. It just screams 80s. Joan Cusack plays the, the gal pal. Gosh, you could not, this is like literally 80s movie by the numbers. Oh, we got Herbert Ross and Nora Ephron and uh, we'll do, uh, Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. Just too perfect. Uh, Twilight Time, great slate of Twilight Time titles, really great. I know they're always great, but here are the Twilight Time Blu-rays this month. Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, they made some movies together. They were married, as everybody should know, and uh, Paul Newman made some movies with Martin Ritt. And this is one with Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, and Martin Ritt all working together with an unbelievable supporting cast. in uh, an adaptation of a really great Faulkner novel, The Long Hot Summer, 1958. This is uh, almost a, a, it's just like a, this is like a perfect studio film from this era. It really is. Uh, Martin Ritt, just such a, a, an amazing director to do anything Faulkner. Uh, and it just captures a time and a place, and it's wonderful. And Orson Welles is in this as well, and Angela Lansbury and Lee Remick. It's, uh, it, it's really, really a, a sharp movie. Uh, it's uh, considered one of the sort of most quintessential Paul Newman performances, and uh, it's it's worth rediscovering. It's really great. And then we've also got, as long as we're talking about summer, suddenly last summer, which is uh, considered sort of the one of the the quintessential uh, Elizabeth Taylor performances. This is, however, a is much more than a, an Elizabeth Taylor movie. This is. Uh, a multiple Oscar-nominated, Sam Spiegel-produced, Joseph L. Mankiewicz-directed, adapted from Tennessee Williams by Gore Vidal and Tennessee Williams' monster Hollywood superstar thing. It also has Katherine Hepburn, Montgomery Clift. Uh, I mean, look, Sam Spiegel, one of only two producers ever to have uh, produced three best pictures, okay? The other one being um, Saul Zanz. Saul Zantz and Sam Spiegel, only two producers who've ever produced three best pictures. Sam Spiegel, major guy. So suddenly last summer, you know, already off to a good start. You add Joseph L. Mankiewicz, Tennessee Williams, Gore Vidal, and that cast, it's just amazing. So um, 
Yeah, it's uh, based on the uh, Tennessee Williams play, and uh, Elizabeth Taylor has never been more beautiful. And uh, obviously, you know, everybody has dark secrets here, as they always do. And Montgomery Clift, as a psychiatrist, is uh, surprisingly, surprisingly convincing. And uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Katherine Hepburn both got Oscar nominations. So uh, Suddenly Last Summer is an amazing release from Twilight Time. I can't believe that they nabbed that one. It is great. A little bit of an odd one, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag with Joe Pesci. This is after Joe Pesci had won his Oscar, and he was kind of a thing. And it was written and directed by Tom Schulman, who uh, had won an Oscar for, uh, for uh, huh? Dead Poets Society. Society, absolutely. He'd also written um, uh, 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 What About Bob? He's not gone. He's never gone. <laughs> so Tom Schulman was in his heyday here, and he did a really—he chose a really weird uh, script to to make his as his directing debut, and that's perhaps why he hasn't directed much since, because this didn't really do well. It's not a bad movie; it's just an unusual movie. And uh, Joe Pesci is this gangster who has to sort of courier a, a, a bag filled with human heads, and. I will not tell you what wraps around that, but the uh, the story is a little bit convoluted, but has some interesting twists and turns. Um, it's a it's a curious thing for Twilight Time to to, to pick, but it it you know what um, I don't know maybe there's a cult following there that I'm missing out on. Uh, also, the uh, from Shokiku, uh, Twilight Time occasionally releases Shokiku movies, and this is one that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, the uh, Emperor in August on Blu-ray. Um, this is a really interesting movie, and it is uh, effectively, this is from Masato uh, Harada, which is a very strangely intimate movie about the emperor of Japan before the Japanese surrender. And it's really a chamber piece. It's very, very small and, and intimate, and it uh, centers on the idea that the emperor really was not any kind of leader of Japan during World War II, that he was basically run by the generals, and he was sort of this isolated figure who was treated like a child and kept in the dark and uh, largely made a figurehead by what was otherwise a military dictatorship. So uh, I don't think enough people have really paid attention to the fact that Japan at a certain point underwent a passive coup. You know, this had always been a, a feudal society ruled by emperors and shoguns and so forth. And at a certain point, the emperor was displaced by his military rulers. And it was never a formal coup. It just kind of happened passively. But this gets into the, uh, the, the ramifications of that for the emperor himself, who was a very, very isolated figure and deemed to be a, 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 a god. So interesting. And then the last one from Twilight Time, one of my all-time favorite Elvis, Elvis Presley movies, Kid Galahad. Elvis boxes, he sings, he loves, he romances. He does a little bit of boxing, too, and he does a lot of singing. It's Elvis, and he sings songs, and it's great. Uh, the Mirish Company, who did a lot of Billy Wilder stuff at the time, they were the original independent producers in Hollywood. The Mirish Company uh, got behind Elvis and uh, gave us Kid Galahad, which is a bit of a silly movie, but who cares? It's Elvis, and he sings. And uh, Charles Bronson shows up in this as well somehow for some strange really? reason. Charles Bronson's in there. Charles Bronson been too is too long for that film. I haven't Charles seen Bronson him in a long is, time. is 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 yeah. Charles Bronson is his trainer. He's his boxing trainer. I had I really blocked that out of my memory. <laughs> it's really kind of odd and strange and weird all at the same time. But he sings. You know, I got lucky. Come on, it's great. Uh, Ed Asner's first film, by the way. Did you know that? Oh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Anyway, Kid Galahad, Elvis Presley, gotta love an Elvis movie. Elvis movies are so much fun to watch because you don't have to think too much about them. 
you just throw that sucker on, do something else, and as soon as the song comes, you just start shake it a little bit in the in your in your kitchen, and while you're cooking, you just shake it a little bit, watch a little bit of Elvis, and you shake it, and somehow you make a meal, you and you bake? you shake and bake. It's great. Wait, we have a uh, uh, Matt, we have two collections that include lots. We have three collections that include lots of movies. Um, starting from the one that includes the least amount of films, we have the Matrimony Double Feature, Divorce American Style with Dick Van Dyke and Debbie Reynolds, yeah. and How to Save a Marriage and Ruin Your Life with Dean Martin and Stella Stevens. Fantastic. Now, now Divorce American Style is a good movie. It's a yes, good it movie. Is. It is. It's, it's kind of a real film. Um, directed by Bud Yorkin, produced by Norman Lear, also written by Norman Lear. Can you believe that? Yep. It has, it has, there's a lot of great scenes in the film. You know what? It's one of those movies that it's funny, but it's not played for laughs. It's got a lot of truth in it, but it's not that serious. There's some great stuff in it. There's that one great scene where, um, where the, uh, where Dick Van Dyke and Debbie Reynolds, they've been, you know, married for a, married for a thousand years and they've, it's become a little bit of routine. And there's like this, like, non-spoken word scene where they use this amazing timing where they go around their bedroom and they open the drawers and they, they close open and close the closets and they brush their teeth in this like total silence but perfect choreography to show just the uh, the routine that their marriage has become. It's a great moment and it's a good film. It really is. How to Save a Marriage and Ruin Your Life is like whatever. Um, I love Dean Martin. I never took Dean Martin seriously in, in any movie including uh, the western he was in uh, Magnificent Seven whatever it was. Oh yeah, well. Whatever that was. Um, anyway, so I would not get the matrimony double feature, but I would seek out Divorce American Style if you can find it. It's really good. Um, when Mystery Science Theater 3000 went away, uh, in 2007, five of the original cast members got together and they did a thing called Cinematic Titanic where they went around the country and they uh, projected a film on the screen and they riffed on it and they had some other little funny comedy bits also. And I've seen Cinematic Titanic. I actually know uh, J. Elvis Weinstein... Um, I saw him last month. And uh, yeah, Harry, um, Frank Conniff, I've seen him do stand-up. He's really funny. So Cinematic Titanic is a uh, compilation of 12 movies that they riffed on during their little, uh, their little you know, tour. Um, the Oozing Skull, Doomsday Machine, Legacy of Blood. It just gives you a sense of how bad these movies really are. So yeah, so riffed on hilariously by the original crew, including Joel Hodgson. If you like Mystery Science Theater, you should get Cinematic Titanic. In fact, I'm taking this wave. Yeah, be, you by, be my guest. You're, you, you're the man. You don't care about this. No. Um, finally, the most films in the collection uh, that we're talking about now, 20 movie musicals. I would name them all, but very few of them are any good. Mm -hmm. so there's 20 movie musicals in this thing, uh, and that's it. No extras. They span from the late 30s all the way up to the 50s, late 50s. And I got to say that I'm, you know, I'm looking at these. I mean, Miss Sadie Thompson, I know. Um, the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T is probably the most famous one here. Um, a song to remember. Otherwise, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we love the people at Mill, Mill Creek. But uh, they just took 20 films and just shoved them onto a DVD set and said, here, if you love musicals, watch these. So I would pass on this unless your uh, grandmother is a huge musical fan. Uh, and uh, we've got a couple from the uh, Agfa line. The now the uh, music video distributors MVD MVD Visual distributes the uh, the Agfa titles. Uh, Agfa is the um, American Genre Film Archive. It is not the uh, the same company that makes uh, the film stock Agfa. 
This is the American Genre Film Archive, and they, they work with Something Weird, who was very cool for when uh, Ray and I made uh, Schlock, Secret History of American Movies. Uh, they licensed us all kinds of stuff from the Something Weird library. So between Agfa and Something Weird, we now get a double feature here of uh, Zodiac Killer and Son of Sam. Now this is mainly for the Zodiac Killer. Son of Sam is just kind of a bonus on here. Zodiac Killer's movie from 1971, directed by Tom Hansen, who thought he was William Castle for a moment and did all kinds of bizarre stuff to promote this movie in the, the uh, in the theaters and it's just it's just utterly bizarre at this movie uh, it, it's it's really kind of amazingly and wonderfully terrible originally shot on 16 millimeter and they did a 4k scan of the only surviving 16 millimeter blow-up elements now why they would do that I'm not sure that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I'm sure there's a reason for it. There's a commentary on here with Tom Hansen and uh, his collaborators and trailers, and this is just a bizarre and hilariously bad movie. I, it, is, it is just beautiful, beautiful schlock. And uh, as a, an, a connoisseur of schlock, I've got to say I really appreciate that. Son of Sam is a 1977 movie that was uh, restored from 2K, a 2K scan of the original 35 millimeter. Also not good at all. It's on here only because they just wanted to put the Zodiac Killer and Son of Sam onto a, a, the same double feature, and you know why not? And then a later film from the uh, AGFA people. This is not part of the uh, Something Weird library. This is just something that AGFA picked up on their own. From 1980 is Effects, which is, um, uh, this is a really, really strange movie that came from nowhere. Uh, this is, okay, so uh, here, here's what happens. A bunch of people who were significant figures in the horror film um, movement at the time, including Tom Savini, who did all the makeup effects for, for Day of the Dead, uh, they made a, a movie called Duped, the snuff movie, which was um, this slasher film that was you know, going to be shot in, uh, in, in, in Pittsburgh. And um, somehow it became something else, and that something else is effects. I'm not quite sure what this movie is about. I'm not sure really what to make of it. It's credited to writer-director Dusty Nelson, uh, but it, it, it really is just an utterly bizarre, fantastical, weird, uh, meta film inside a film that, that I can't quite figure out. So, anyway. Uh, check it out if you like those people. If you're a fan of the, the whole Romero Savini moment uh, and you want to see, you know, Tom Savini actually be in a movie, effectively playing himself uh, in the movie about the movie, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a weird one. Effects is the movie, and that's from AGFA and uh, MVD. Uh, Mark. Couple yes, others, a couple others here, and then we're going to jump into our interview. Let's um, do it, Wade. Some great stuff from Olive. Orson Welles is The Stranger. Finally on Blu-ray. Thank you, Olive. Thank you a thousand times. This is uh, really an amazing movie. Uh, it's one of Welles' best films. It looks really quite good here on, uh, on this uh, Blu-ray transfer. Uh, this has inspired a lot of other filmmakers since. It is one of, uh, one of you know, the, the whole idea of a... Uh, Kind of a, a, a Nazi on the run seems a little bit somewhat timely. Um, you know, the, the Orson Welles really has never been better here. I think this rivals Citizen Kane as one of his, his best performances, uh, and a, a terrific screenplay here, adapted by uh, Victor Trivas. Uh, 
Very, very cool from, uh, from a short story by Trivas. Uh, so in any case, the, uh, the most interesting thing about this to me is that they kept the original producer credit on this. We just talked about uh, with the Twilight release of Suddenly Last Summer, Sam Spiegel, only producer ever, or one of the only two producers ever to w uh, win an Oscar for, for producing three best pictures. Well, this is produced by S.P. Eagle. Spiegel! That's Sam Spiegel. That was his, uh, that was the, the pseudonym that he used when he was producing movies before he, when he was an illegal immigrant. Did you know that? I did not know that. Sam Spiegel was illegal for much of the time that he was producing movies. Wow. So he produced them as S.P. Eagle so he wouldn't get deported. Couldn't do it today. Yeah, he literally, he, he, was, he was thrown out of the country and he came back through Mexico and, with a fake passport or something. I forget the exact story. And he started going by the name S.P. Eagle. It's quite funny. So anyway, uh, yeah, Sam Spiegel produced, uh, produced The Stranger as S.P. Eagle. And they've kept that credit on the, uh, in the credit bed on the back of this. So I think that's terrific. Edward G. Robinson and Loretta Young also show up. Really great movie. Also from Olive, The Wedding Banquet, Ang Lee's first breakthrough film. Uh, this got an Oscar nomination in 1993, very deservedly. Uh, this is a, a romantic comedy set around a, uh, well, I won't tell you anything else, it, but there, you know, it, there's, a, there's a gay couple, and uh, there's a wedding banquet, and there's an arranged marriage, and there, there are people who should be together and people who shouldn't be together, and it all comes together in a very, very funny uh, and, and hysterically smart screenplay. Uh, there's even a, a little, speaking of illegal immigrants, there's a little green card aspect to the story as well. It's really sharp. Ang Lee co-wrote it uh, with James Seamus and Neil Pung, and uh, Seamus continues to be his collaborator to this day. Wonderful job. Produced by James Seamus and his then-producing partner, S.P. Eagle. Ted Hope, who now runs Amazon. Crazy. Yep. Amazing where these people wind up. And then the last one from Olive is uh, Spirits of the Sum. 1st July, 1916, The Blackest Day. Uh, this is a DVD, not a Blu-ray, but this is a DVD about the uh, first day um, of the sum, one of the, one of the most horrible, terrible parts of the uh, World War I. Uh, there were s over 60,000 British casualties by the end of it. And uh, this is uh, really, I'm, I'm glad they've done this, because World War I, now that we're celebrating the, the centennial of World War I these past few years, um, really, really... Uh, important to remember that that's where it really all begins. World War II is just sort of the sequel to World War I in, in literal and figurative ways. And uh, this, is a, this is a tremendous documentary. 51 minutes, uh, very tight, hits all the prominent points, and um, excellent, absolutely excellent. And now we're going to get into our Kino stuff, and we'll uh, dovetail into the interview with Jack Feakston here in just a moment. Uh, the, uh, the titles we have from uh, Kino this week include... Son of Paleface, a great Bob Hope movie with Jane Russell and uh, Roy Rogers, directed by Frank Tashlin, who, of course, did an awful lot of uh, Jerry Lewis stuff, came out of uh, Warner yeah. Brothers' animated cartoons, the uh, Looney Tunes stuff. And uh, this is a really fun film, a really fun film. Uh, Tashlin is just as good with Bob Hope as he is with Jerry Lewis. The, the comic timing here is wonderful. Tashlin also co-wrote it with uh, you know, Robert Welch and Joseph Quillen. Uh, there's an audio commentary and an animated short that Tashlin did in 1946, just a few years earlier. This is from the movie was made in 1952, and you know what? It's uh, look, it's Bob Hope vehicle from the period. I mean, he just he, you know, Roy Rogers is his straight man, and Jane Russell is the gal, and uh, otherwise uh, Bob Hope just gets to do an awful lot of uh, shtick. You even get some great cameos from Bing Crosby and Cecil B. DeMille. It's a lot of fun. It's really a lot of fun. Pritzi's Honor, also from Kino. It's about time, right? Blah. Wish it had more extras, though. 
It has a you know commentary from a couple of film historians and uh, some trailers, and that's it. It needs more. John Huston, this was John Huston's sort of last great movie. It wasn't his last, but it was his last great Oscar-nominated movie. Uh, yeah, but it's funny how this didn't feel like a John Huston film to me. I don't know why. Did it feel like a John Huston film to you? Yeah, it did. Did it? Yeah, it does. It why? feels like a John uh, Huston. It's got film. crime in it, and uh... it it has it has a certain attitude that is very John Huston, and perhaps it is also because the editor of the film, uh, Rudy Fair, was a teacher of mine in school, and Rudy uh, had edited. You know, he edited this with his daughter. He was in the twilight years of his editing career at the time. Rudy had previously edited, you know, he'd, he'd run post-production at Warner Brothers. He was the one that made the choice for Marnie Nixon to be the singing voice of Audrey Hepburn in uh, My Fair Lady. Rudy previously had uh, edited things like uh, a lot of old Humphrey Bogart uh, noirs. I mean, he was, you know, Rudy was a, Rudy goes back into the 40s. And so this was kind of the end of his editing career and his last, um, his last uh, uh, big editing Oscar nomination. And uh, he talked a lot in class about editing this and fighting with Houston. Houston didn't like cutting on action. So a character would walk in in long shot, sit down, and once their ass is in the chair, cut to that shot of them sitting in the chair. Rudy always wanted to cut on action. As you're sitting down, cut on the motion of sitting down. So it's a seamless cut. Houston wouldn't have it, would not hear of it. And yet, fought him on it. Isn't that funny, those little things? Well, yet you would think that if that was your cutting style, your film would be, would be boring. You have to wait till everybody finishes their yeah. action before you can make the cut. Yeah. And the cumulative effect, you'd be like, God, that's a boring film. But Houston films were languid, but never boring. Very true. Princey's Honor, a really great gangster movie. Jack Nicholson, uh, Angelica Houston, who won an Oscar for it. Yeah. Great movie. Great movie. He directed his dog. Look, the only man in history who's ever directed his, a parent and a child to Oscar wins. Come on, how cool is that? How do you, you know that? You directed your dad, and, you, and then you direct your daughter. It's fantastic. I love it. Uh, I know I know things. There's gunk in my head. And then lastly, the three the 3D Western musical. Those redheads from Seattle: Rhonda Fleming, Gene Barry, the Bell Sisters, Agnes Moorhead. This is a terrific discovery from the 3D Film Archive. And uh, I am going to now let Jack Theakston, who was involved in the restoration of this, speak more directly to those redheads from Seattle. Uh, it is our enormous privilege to right now be speaking with Jack Beekston, who is the associate producer of the 3D Film Archives, who worked with uh, the uh, worked with Kino on the Kino's recent uh, release of the 3D film Those Redheads from Seattle. Um, Jack, th this, Those Redheads from Seattle is a 3D film, a musical, a 3D musical of all things that I think is probably not on the radar of even a lot of our fans who are uh, 3D aficionados who normally think of things like House of Wax and all the obvious horror films. Could you talk a little bit about the particular 3D era that birthed this particular movie? Well, thanks, Wade. It's great to be on the show. Um, Those Redheads from Seattle is uh, Paramount Pictures' second 3D film that they made during the 3D boom that lasted approximately between 1952 and 1955. And uh, it is the first 3D musical, uh, Deep Kiss Me Kate by, I believe it was uh, a month and a half or something like that. Um, it's a, te a Technicolor widescreen 3D stereophonic sound musical. Uh, it was produced by the Pine Thomas unit at Paramount, which was kind of, wouldn't say their B unit, but a you know lower echelon 
Western unit. Um, it was run by Bill Pine and Bill Thomas. The Hollywood used to call them the dollar bills because they could stretch a dollar in a production. And it's got a really good uh, cast, a good uh, production value on it. It's got uh, Rhonda Fleming, uh, Jean Barry, the Bell Sisters, uh, Agnes Moorhead is in it, um, Teresa Brewer, and Guy Mitchell. It's 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 a really fun film, and it's uh, we should say it's set during the gold rush. It's got a uh, uh, kind of a western vibe to it as well, and uh, the, the setting is just is, is terrific. I mean, it was a real discovery for me. And Rhonda Fleming, I've actually met. Rhonda Fleming was was married to uh, Ted Mann of Man Theaters fame, and I worked for Man Theaters in my first year in college. And they would walk in all the time, so it's it's kind of great to always see her when she was uh, when she was a movie star. Um, the what, what's what's particularly fascinating to me is the idea of doing musicals in 3D um, because I think a lot of people may not realize that musicals were considered a prime 3D target during this particular period, um, and you can actually see it here. What what was the what was what went into the restoration of this? Talk specifically about perhaps how how a musical in 3D differs from the use of 3D in other films. Well, as far as the cinematography goes or the production planning and the production design, um, you'll have not too much of a difference from any other film, but of course, your set pieces are the musical numbers. So that's where the producers and the directors of these films put the most effort into the musical parts of it is the show numbers and how those would show off in 3D. And uh, in Those Redheads from Seattle... You know, there are a couple of songs that are um, essentially throwaway tunes in the show, but um, there are a few that are really terrific and really well composed for 3D. I mean, I think anyone who sees this film for the first time, and if they're a 3D buff or if they're a musical buff, it doesn't matter, they'll see how well uh, these musical numbers for a small-budget film were were planned. Uh, There's one that Teresa Brewer does called uh, Baby, 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 and it starts off with a black curtain, and these multicolored gloves kind of pop out through behind the curtain. gives it an interesting sense of depth. And then there's a number that Guy Mitchell does called Chickaboom, which has some really uh, nice camera work, but there's also some comedy business that's going on in the foreground while the music goes on in the background, too, so it's really layered. And Baby, Baby, Baby was uh, that was recorded by a bunch of people. I think that became kind of a, a, a long-standing uh, standard for uh, for quite a while. Um, yeah, and and Brewer had a hit with it, so it was, yeah. it was actually a hit record at the time. And uh, you know, Agnes Moorhead is in this as well, uh, who everyone obviously remembers from Bewitched, and she's just always wonderful in everything else that she does. Um, the, uh, the, the, is there anything specifically different from the way the studios approached 3D uh, versus the way that the independents produced 3D at the time? Because obviously, you know, we all know that 3D was something that a lot of, uh, a lot of the outside, after the Paramount Consent Decree, and then 3D came along, a lot of the smaller outside the mainstream companies and independent producers that couldn't ever really get screens or, or find their way between the studios saw that as a way to get attention, and they really, really exploited 3D. Did the studios use 3D differently? 
Well, I think if you look from a studio to studio perspective, you'll see the philosophies in each studios. Um, Paramount tended to be a bit more conservative when it came to trying to do off-the-screen effects. Uh, Columbia was the exact opposite, uh, save for one film. Those are the most gimmicky of the films from that period. They're also mostly westerns, too. Um, and Warner Brothers, I think, would like fall halfway in between, and then everyone else is sort of spread out between those. But keep in mind, there were only about a half a dozen camera rigs at the time, and all of these studios had to kind of vie for them. And uh, so a lot of the stereoscopy that you see in the films um, is mostly because of the director of photography planning it out, but also to having stereo consultants that came with each of those cameras as the studios rented them. Interesting. And when you're when we talk about film restoration, there are just so many different ways to do it, and obviously digital tools make it so much easier today. Uh, can you use the same? I mean, how how does how does the the restoration process of 3D uh, differ in, in any way? Uh, do you have to go back and, and be more uh, photochemical, or are the digital tools sufficient? How does that? How does that? Um, and most of it starts out just at a very basic photochemical level, which is uh, going through the original elements, making sure that they're uh, up to snuff, identifying which one of them are the best, and all that sort of thing. Then we take it into the digital realm by scanning them. And that's where most of the magic occurs at this point. Um, most of the digital work that we do is we start with alignment. So we do all the alignment issues because every once in a while you get something where maybe one eye, one side of these two panels is maybe a little bit higher or a little bit more to the left or whatever. And that can be all compensated for digitally now. Uh, when back back in the day it had to be done optically. Um, and then color correction is the next step if it's a color film. And in this case, we were working with some very faded elements. Um, we were able to bring back, I would say, about 95% of the color. I was very happy with the end result. Uh, there are a few optical shots that are a little fuzzy and soft. And unfortunately, in, in this film... Um, the opticals, which are the points in the film which dissolves or fades or special effects are introduced, uh, those were more susceptible to fading, and therefore there are these long sections sometimes where things look a little bit softer and grainier, maybe not as colorful, but uh, those are the exceptions to the rule in the film. And then we do dirt and uh, scratch removal and... Uh, any kind of final tweaks we need to do, and it, it was ready to go. This one was relatively simple. We got it done in a in a pretty short window. And uh, the Bell Sisters are such an interesting part of this because I think they only made one, maybe two other movies. Um, yeah. They they kind of had that moment in the early fifties when they were they were all over television and all over the the, the charts, and uh, then they kind of uh, went away. Were they? Do you know if they were cast in this movie basically to just capitalize on on that moment when they were they were sort of on fire? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think what happened was Paramount recognized that they were popular recording stars at the time, and uh, like a lot of studios, kind of just uh, threw what threw something at the wall and see what stuck. 
and they're really good in the film too. It's, they're they're uh, terrific. That's why that's why I'm kind of surprised that they didn't wind up in in more films because I I think they the the Bell Sister phenomenon sort of lasted from about 1952 to 54. It was sort of a two year window, yeah. and then they they just uh, they went away. But they were they were all over early television and talk shows and, and everything else. Yeah, and then they continued on. I think they focused more on. Uh, Nightclubs and things like that, but uh, this is their their little moment in film, and same thing with Teresa Brewer for that matter. Yeah. Well, tell tell us what what's next on the on the plate. Uh, what else are you guys working on that we can look forward to? Well, um, we've got quite <laughs> quite a lineup actually. Um, Kino Lorber is doing most of our releases at this point, uh, so we've contracted to do almost all of the Paramount 3D titles. Uh, the next title that we're working on is uh, Ceasefire, which is a Korean War docudrama actually shot on the front lines of the Korean War in the last month. Uh, and it also stars actual soldiers from the Korean War. Wow. Um, that will be followed next by uh, the William Cameron Menzies horror film The Maze. Um, and we're looking forward to that because that's going to be a uh, 4K restoration. Wow, okay. Um, and then we have a number of Paramount titles, and uh, actually this weekend uh, we'll be announcing uh, one of our other projects is uh, the Mickey Spillane film noir, I the Jury. Oh, terrific. Terrific, that's great. Well, bravo. So there's, a lot, there's a lot in the pipeline. Well, you guys will be busy for a while. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, Jack, thank you for speaking with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Best of luck with all the rest of the work, and uh, maybe we'll speak to you again uh, when one of those titles uh, comes out, and we'll have more to talk about on one of those. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Jack. Jack Beeston of the uh, associate producer of the 3D Film Archive. Thank you. You see, I don't, I don't hate all 3D. Everybody thinks I hate 3D. You do hate 3D. No, I don't. You hate can, no, you probably hate all contemporary 3D. Sure. But you like old school 3D. All right, Mark, let's wrap off with uh, wrap it up with TV. TV? TV. TV. Blow TV. Blow through some TV. Uh, you know what? I'm going to do some. Uh, oh, here's what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to talk about superhero TV because it's worth talking about. Did you watch The Defenders? No. no. Oh, come on, man. I don't, I don't, you know what? I don't have Netflix anymore because I wanted to save the $20 a month. Because I'll be moving soon, and I'll be poor, and possibly homeless. So $20 means a lot. Well, fine. Be that way. So, um, uh, first off, Batman and Harley Quinn. Okay, why is what? Have you heard all the Joker movies that have been announced? I know. What is up? It's a, the, 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 the one that Scorsese's producing. That's the why? weirdest one. What is, Don't I, they realize that he's being used to lure DiCaprio into the title role? Uh, okay. What what on what universe is everyone clamoring for not just one, but multiple Joker movies with multiple people playing the Joker? What's the point of that? I have no idea. It'll just be Joker overload, Joker I, saturation. I, I I don't I don't but get the Scorsese, it. But that's the weird one. I don't know it's what. So bizarre. I don't know what Scorsese. Why would Scorsese sign on for that? And then one of them is like a romance with Joker and Harley Quinn, which will be bringing back Jared Leto and uh, what's her face. I I don't. I just don't get it. Uh, anyway, so here we have a 4K Ultra HD animated uh, DC Universe original movie, Batman and Harley Quinn. Uh, 
it's it's the usual thing. Why this is on 4K, I don't really know. It doesn't necessarily benefit from it to any great degree, and I can't imagine that the people who want to watch this are early adopters of you know uh, OLED television sets and and 4K Blu-ray players. But fine, fair enough. I'll 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 roll with it. Um, the, the 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 whole thing starts with a break-in at Star Labs, which of course is is familiar to anybody who watches The Flash. And uh, then it gets into all kinds of very strange. Um, it gets into it gets into a weird DC universe area that is is a little bit askew from what's been in some of the other original DC animated films. Um, it's fine. I just don't know why they threw this at, at 4K. But anyway, Batman and Harley Quinn. It's it's decently made and uh, you know a bit of an anomaly. Talking about The Flash, complete third season of The Flash. You love this show. Now out on Blu-ray as the fourth season is about to begin. Uh, yeah, I, I do love this show, but, you know, here's what's, here's what's uh, occurred to me after watching all of the Defender stuff on Netflix. Flash wishes that it was a premium cable show because they really, out of every 23-episode season, there are really, they, they have an overarching arc that's carrying you through the season, right? Like in this season, it's the fact that, that uh, you know, his girlfriend is going to get killed by this, this, the, this horrible speedster uh, that wears an iron, you know, uh, this, I, I won't give anything specifically away, but Iris is going to be killed because in the future. He knows this. They've seen the future. She's going to be killed um, by this particular speedster that no one knows his real identity because he wears a coat of armor. Okay, so... And they have to stop that. There's only about eight or nine, maybe ten episodes worth of story that pertain to that. Everything else is filler. So there's even in like a musical episode where they where there's some metahuman who throws them into a, a world where you know they have to pretend like they're in a 1940s musical and everybody else shows up and does different characters. It's bizarre and weird and ridiculous. Um, None of that stuff has anything to do with the overarching seasonal arc, but they've got to fill the rest of those 12, 13 episodes with something, so they just make a bunch of junk up, and it's like treading water. That's the problem with The Flash, is that it really should only be about a 10, 13-episode season tops. Or it should be like 24. Like, yeah. Remember the old show 24? Sure. Yeah. The whole season takes place in 24 hours. Yeah, well, they, but they don't need 23 episodes to do it. So I still love The Flash. The third season, I'm a little annoyed by how it ended. It ends on... There's Iris a, dies. It's a terrible, terrible trap. I have no idea. There's a, no, the, the way it ends is... Oh, uh, you're giving it away. The, the way it Iris lives. I'm not, I'm not saying... I'm just saying the way it ends is, is a kind of a, a hokey cliffhanger setup for the fourth season. Uh, I don't think... It's, the, be, the previous seasons have been better cliffhangers. So. Is there a Flash dog with like a dog... Dresses up like the Flash and, and runs really fast. Stop. Stupid dog. Stop. Doggy. Uh, Jessica Jones, first season, and Daredevil, second season, also out on Blu-ray. Uh, pretty darn good-looking Blu-rays, I got to admit. Look way better than streaming on Netflix. So if you if you really want to archivally collect these, this is the way to do it. Second season of Daredevil is just a massively awesome show. It really is. Uh, it's you you have to have seen this to watch the Defenders because. The Defenders is mostly a, a sequel season to both Iron Fist and Daredevil. So if you haven't seen Jessica Jones, if you haven't seen Luke Cage, you, you'll, you'll be okay. 
but if you haven't seen Iron Fist or uh, season one of Daredevil season two, you'll be messed up. So don't watch The Defenders unless you've seen at least those two. Uh, season two, Daredevil is still the best show of all of these, and the end of The Defenders sets up Daredevil season three. So there is no connectivity between season two and three of Daredevil. There, the season three will be will will require you to have seen The Defenders in between. Hopefully, I'm not confusing people. Anyway, Daredevil season two, which you know has also sets up The Punisher and uh, who's getting his own series as well, is, is just a great, it's a great, great show. And uh, Jessica Jones, season one, with Purple Man. Purple Man? Purple Man. Purple Man, who's a, uh, a villain in the comics. Uh, you know, Kilgrave is the Purple Man. He's not purple here. He's purple in the comics. He's not purple here. Uh, but uh, pretty great. Uh, it's basically a chase sequence. The whole season is just one cat and mouse chase sequence and it's really good and uh, I think Jessica Jones is a great show as well so highly recommended on both cases love them all right Wade uh, I guess we're wrapping out with uh, yep. some uh, CBS uh, one-hour dramas that's yep. that skewed to the uh, to the 55 year old man who watches CBS we have Hawaii Five-0 uh, season seven boy this thing just keeps going there was a controversy recently where uh, they were accused of not giving their uh, their uh, Asian or minority characters, uh, yep, they were they not re-upping re re them they for all as quit. much as the white characters. They all quit. They all quit. Yep. And uh, you know what? I think they should quit because this is just a stupid show. It's, but it keeps kind of it's sort of unnecessary. It is kind of an unnecessary yeah. show. Uh, Elementary, fifth season, Lucy Liu, the thing keeps going too. Uh, this is just a weird show. I don't know who watches this. It's uh, Sherlock Holmes in modern-day New York, and it just keeps going. And Watson, of course, is played by Lucy Liu. Uh, special features include, uh, you know, this was the 100th episode, um, was during the season, which means lots of money for uh, Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu. So they talk about that. There's a gag reel, deleted scenes. So there you go, Elementary, Season 5, NCIS. Which one is this? NCIS uh, Barstow? Which is it? <laughs> this is, no, NCIS. N na uh, this is NCIS. The, the original. 14th season of NCIS with Mark Harmon, the most resilient, greatest actor in Hollywood history. It's kind of true. Pam Dauber has not had to work forever because he's just she's just been living off of this as well. I think God, that's great. Does Pam Dauber, she even work? No. Why would she? He's making NCIS. Man. Yeah. This movie, this show's <laughs> Come on. 14 years of NCIS. How does that even... How is that even possible? I can get I behind understand. Criminal Minds. I can get behind Criminal Minds because it it, uh, it it features Joe Montana, and I love Joe Montana. I'm just uh, I, it just makes me angry that he's doing this instead of films, specifically instead of David Mamet films. Not that Mamet's making a lot of films recently yeah. or lately, but still, you got Criminal Minds, which I would recommend based on Joe Montana because I love him. And finally, for you 59 year old guy out there who just loves CBS, Scorpion season three. Catherine McPhee is in this. She's delicious. <laughs> I do. I think she's so hot. Come on, Catherine McPhee. Uh, there you go. So this is about a team of uh, smart people who solve the uh, crime at the end of the episode. I don't know what to say. Seriously, what the hell is wrong with CBS? Because they, they know who their audience is, and they won't stop catering to them. Yeah. Instead of expanding it, they just, they just double down on what yeah. they got. Yeah. That's what it is. And uh, from Acorn, got some British stuff from Acorn, uh, from the Athena line, the Churchills, which is a, you know, coming at the right time, just as uh, Gary Oldman is about to make his Oscar run as Winston Churchill. Uh, this is a, from David Starkey, who is you know, a, a, a scholar, a rather extraordinary historian and scholar. He tells the story of uh, uh, the two great Churchills, uh, John Churchill, 
the ancestor of Winston Churchill and then Winston Churchill himself. It's really, really very interesting. Uh, if you're not familiar with John Churchill, it's, it's the parallel stories may really make this. It's very, very fascinating. I, I was, didn't know as much as I thought I knew. Uh, and then Evelyn Waugh's, remember Evelyn Waugh, isn't it Evelyn Waugh, the way you're supposed to pronounce it? Evelyn? Evelyn Waugh. I, I refuse to do Because it's a man. It's not, okay. you know. You know what? It's like, it's like those guys who are named Ian that, re that really want you to yeah. pronounce it Ian. Well, I'm Evelyn. Not it Ian. It's Ian. Evelyn Waugh's uh, Decline and Fall was, uh, makes for quite good television, and that's uh, available on Acorn TV, and it's now on Acorn DVD. And uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, rather Edwardian uh, satire, which is very funny and has a great cast. And I think it's uh, an awful lot of fun. If you, if you like all of that uh, satirical class warfare stuff, you'll really enjoy this. Decline and Fall, very, very smart on DVD. Uh, with uh, David Suchet, by the way, David Suchet, Suchet, however you want to pronounce it, uh, finally doing something other than Poirot. Quite good. Eva Longoria shows are very funny as well. And then uh, Series 3 of Rake which is still really terrific. Uh, I really enjoy this. It's an Australian show, and uh, very, very fun, very, uh, very smart. Even if you don't understand the legal system in uh, Australia, you'll enjoy Rake. Series 3 keeps on, keeps on trucking, very, very smart. Uh, let's see. Oh, and then um, Just Shoot Me, which I only caught up with in reruns, is out in a complete series now. And uh, Just Shoot Me, I still think, is a very, very funny show. George Siegel makes me laugh like nobody's business. David Spade is fine, fair enough, but George Siegel really just slays me on this show. It's a great cast, and uh, having worked in publishing, not a fashion magazine, but in publishing, this gets the workplace comedy absolutely right. So this is the, uh, the complete series of Just Shoot Me. Four cases, all seven seasons, uh, a total of uh, 19 discs. It is really quite a big mama, and uh, Shout Factory has done a number on this one, but uh, I think it's great. It's a good show. It's worth owning. Every, every, every episode is funny as hell. You know, Narco Season 3 is out, and everybody's yep. talking about what are they going to do now that this particular character, which I'm not going to mention, is no longer on the show. How will it succeed? Well, if you want to see what led us into Season 3, you got to check out Season 2 of Narcos. And people love the show. It's a great show. Pablo Escobar escaping from prison. Police are after him. Rival cartels are after him. DEA is after him. What's he going to do? And, uh, yeah, somehow um, they wound up making this thing a winner. So season three is out. It premiered uh, a couple weeks ago. It premiered on uh, September 1st. So, uh, yeah, people love Narcos. It uh, really shines a light on that whole world. doesn't make Escobar sympathetic, but at least you get to understand how he became to be who he was. And uh, special features on this include deleted scenes, a couple featurettes, audio commentary uh, with the director, and um, Wagner Mora, who plays uh, Pablo Escobar. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. Narco Season 2, you get your prime for Narco Season 3. And then uh, winding things up, Supernatural has made it to 12 seasons. Heaven help us, I don't know why. I still can't tell anybody in this cast apart. It's, it's standard for the CW. And uh, there's a 13th season starting. So, I mean, obviously they've got their, their following and they keep doing something right. Uh, but uh, I can't tell the Winchester brothers apart from anybody else on this thing. Uh, so uh, there you go. 12th season of Supernatural, just like all the others. And... Um, Kiefer Sutherland in the first season of Designated Survivor from ABC. Have you seen any of this? I have not. 
I'm I'm uh, I, I'm guardedly optimistic to be honest, and I wasn't going to be the desi- you know the whole idea behind the designated survivor, right? Yeah, that's why I'm surprised nobody's thought to think uh, to make a show to, out to of make it. a show out of it, right? You know, the, with the in a presidential crisis, who the designated survivor would be, um, and he's you know he's a lower level cabinet member who becomes the designated survivor, and I won't I won't you know give you what the season's about, but it's uh, 21 episodes that are all really pretty solid. I mean, we're we're hearkening back to to 24 type intensity here and uh, obviously that's why he was cast because he brings a certain political gravitas as an actor Sutherland does um, but this is a really interesting show and uh, I've got a lot of hopes for it it's better than what's been showing up on network television in quite some time so uh, there is hope yet for network television uh, complete first season of ABC's Designated Survivor uh, with Kiefer Sutherland definitely uh, check that out it is it is worth a look more so than uh, mainstream commercial television has been in quite some time all right, Mark, uh, that should do it for this week. Yes. Yes, and uh, we are done. So we will uh, we'll see you guys next week. And, Mark, any any luck yet? Any bites, uh, nibbles on the on leasing uh, the place? Call up to Larry. Come it's on, Larry. Get, find me a winner, Larry. 